Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's March 23rd, 2020, 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, United States, 4 p.m. Did I say eight? I've got to start again. Uh, It's March 23rd, 2020. It's 9 a.m. Pacific time, United States, 4 p.m. United Kingdom time. Uh, I am speaking with one of the world's leading economists, Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator of the Financial Times. At this particular moment, the 1.8 billion, uh, sorry, the 1.8, I'm not used to this word, the 1.8 trillion dollar stimulus in the United States Congress is still hung up between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans uh, Martin, is this $1.8 trillion stimulus going to make any difference to the current crisis of world capitalism? Well, I think of it as a crisis of the world economy this time. It's really broad. The answer is um, threefold. One, um, the sum is a good start, uh, and it's very likely they're going to have to do more. Um, two, as far as I understand the detail, what is currently being proposed is not uh, very, very far from the ideal set of measures to deal with this crisis, uh, and therefore it needs to be restructured in very, in very important uh, ways. And the third point is it really is crucial that it be done now. Uh, and. Uh, and money gets into the economy because people are being laid off in very large number and the unemployment figure is going to look utterly dreadful very, very soon. So the sooner the better. Martin, you're in London. What's the view from there in terms of what of, of how the, the, the Johnson government is or is not dealing with the crisis? I think everybody has a different view. My own view is that the response on the health side has been wrong-headed and lackadaisical, uh, fundamentally mistaken ideas about what made sense, and that's going to make it very, very difficult to catch up. But I would say that in the last week, um, really a bit longer, last 10 days, on the economic side, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Treasury have been um, pretty imaginative Uh, in conjunction with the central bank, the Bank of England. Of course, we have the advantage of a very centralised government, which allows you to decide a lot of things relatively easily, particularly if it has a big majority, as it does now. But I think on the economic side, we're we're doing some pretty good things. I think they're going to need more. They're going to need to get more money out to ordinary people. We have a real problem with the self-employed gig workers, you know, getting money to them. 
I think they're going to need more help for industries that are particularly badly hit if they're not all going to go bankrupt in the next few months. But I think they've made a pretty good start. What I'm really worried about is we haven't gone into lockdown quickly enough. We don't have testing in our country, so we can't get out of lockdown efficiently. We don't have a plan for for minimizing the economic damage. These are the things that are desperately needed everywhere. Uh, For the last couple of years, Martin, you've been warning everybody about, I don't know if this is your term, but you've used it a lot, what you've called rigged capitalism, a capitalism that benefits the wealthy um, uh, to the detriment of of middle class and poor people. Is this the opportunity, this crisis to, so to speak, unrig capitalism? Well, I think... I don't think it's going to be possible realistically, given the overload that we now have, to uh, fix the entire system. But we can and must make sure that the ways we deal with this crisis don't make it worse. And they could easily do so. I mean, the way I understand the proposals now being discussed in the US Senate is essentially they will provide an enormous amount of money to big corporations, almost unsupervised uh, um, at, at the discretion of the Treasury Secretary. They would do basically next to nothing for small scale business. They would do pretty little for many of the unemployed, and they would do essentially nothing for all the self-employed people, again, next to nothing for all the self-employed people. In other words, the vast majority of the middle class and the poor would be unhelped. And yet they're the ones, quite clearly, who are going to suffer the worst costs from this. We know that nearly, you know, an enormous proportion of Americans, the same is true in Britain, have no cash reserves at all. So that if they don't have jobs, they're going to run out of money pretty quickly. Sick pay is very limited in America, as I understand it. It's better here. So the problem is that the methods we use to deal with the crisis could make the problem of rig capitalism even worse. I also think, and there's a proposal that is now floating, that any assistance that goes from government to the corporate sector ought to be in the form of preferred stock. So that if there's an upside, because they're buying into companies when the stock market is very low, then the government will share in the upside. I think that makes a lot of sense. So we mustn't make things worse in this crisis. And I think we are quite likely to do so. Martin, you're also someone with a very keen sense of history. Is there an equivalent crisis uh, uh, in capitalism, in world capitalism, in, in the globalized system? Is it is it the 1920s? Well, it's it seems to be a combination of things. Um, uh, it's a combination of, th- of different times coming together. The last pandemic of this kind seems to have been the Spanish flu of 1918-19, which killed, nobody knows exactly, but something like 60 million people which would be probably something like uh, more than 150 million today. So enormous. And it did cause a recession, but uh, basically this was just allowed to burn out. Nobody knew how to handle it. Uh, It did have very significant uh, effects on the economy, but there weren't lockdowns or anything like that, or there weren't very many. So its effects were rather different. It was basically just mass death, uh, just. 
uh, that's pretty significant. It killed far more people than the First World War. And then, of course, the recapitalism issue arose at the beginning of the 20th century uh, with the antitrust uh, movement. And then in the late, in the 30s, after the Great Depression, uh, which is closer to our global financial crisis of 2008-9. So I think these three things have come together. We have this sort of antitrust monopoly issue, which has recurred, but was a very big theme at the beginning of the 20th century, and rightly so, began the antitrust movement. Then we have the, the pandemic problem, which is what happened with the Spanish flu. And we also have had a huge financial crisis, which in this case happened before the pandemic, not after. Um, and these three shocks are all, I believe, coming together in this political time. What would you say to people who argue that this crisis is the inevitable outcome of a, a globalized system where borders aren't strong enough and that ideas and, and diseases travel too freely around the world? Well, I don't think that would be very pers persuasive. Uh, I mean, we know there have been gigantic pandemics in the past. Uh, there was an enormous plague pandemic in the 6th century AD. There was another probably even worse one uh, called the Black Death in the 14th century uh, and subsequent frequent bursts of plague across Europe and other parts of the world. And then, of course, we had the Spanish flu. The truth is that germs don't know frontiers. I should have added, by the way, the simply stupendous death toll in South America when uh, the Europeans, above all the Spanish and Portuguese, came there in the 16th century. So disease travels with us, as it were, long before the modern uh, globalized economy. Uh, the it, it takes so few sufferers from the disease in the in the case of this one, and I think the same is true of the Spanish flu, to transmit it. Perhaps only 10, you know, a few people need to come into a country. And because it's so infectious, it will spread across the entire country. So the idea that there is some non, some world in which this particular disease, given how infectious it is and how long it takes before it shows symptoms, that there is some world of controls in which this flu, this coronavirus did not travel across the world in the way it is, seems to me completely fanciful. And as I said, it already happened 100 years ago, long before contemporary globalization, indeed after a war when everything was really rather closed down. So I don't think this is a crisis of globalization in that sense. What is true, it's a completely different aspect of it, is that uh, when uh, we are hit by a pandemic of this kind, we discover that some of the essential materials we need, the equipment and so forth we need to tackle it, are produced in specific countries. And if everybody starts following nationalist policies as they are, the tendency is for everybody to bottle up what they have that's valuable. And then, of course, we can't deal with it in an effective way. So there are two ways of dealing with that sensible global cooperation, which I think is the right way, the, the decent way. And of course, for everybody to start producing everything at home, which will have its own costs. Uh, speaking of Latin America, Martin, uh, last year you noted that 
um, both we are in, in terms of the West, our economics and our politics are becoming more Latin American. Uh, leaving aside the, the, the rentier capitalist style economics, um, how is politics going to uh, be shaped by this crisis? Is this, this an opportunity to, for us to push back against the populism of Trump or Johnson, or do you fear that it will actually compound that xenophobia, that populist nationalism? This is, I think, a very, very good question. Uh, um, and so you're absolutely right that, and indeed it's an argument of the book I've been writing on this theme, that when societies become highly unequal, um, there is a tendency for, if you like, the impoverished masses, the discarded masses uh, who feel disregarded and disrespected by the establishment, elite opinion, university educated people and so forth to go for a populist hero, a populist protector. And we've seen this many, many times. It could be of the right or the left. In some ways, it seems almost to make no difference to the to people as long as this person looks plausible. Uh, and We've seen this many times in Latin America. We saw it, of course, in the interwar years in Europe with people like Mussolini. And, of course, Hitler played many of these tunes, though, of course, he was sui generis. I'm not comparing others with him. And and we've seen it, of course, very much so recently in the West. Uh, I've frequently said the election of somebody like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson Boris Johnson as prime minister in the UK or Donald Trump as president of the US would have been unthinkable 20 years ago, completely unthinkable. So um, now the optimistic view, my optimistic view, because I don't like these people, will be they're going to be found out. Indeed, they are being found out. They don't know what to do. They can't govern in a sensible way. They have no idea how to interpret evidence, use expertise in a, in a sensible way. So they've been hopelessly ineffective uh, and lied all the time. Uh, I would say Johnson would be better than Trump, but that's basically the story. So I would hope that people... Uh, will say, look, here we have this huge crisis. We can see we're doing very badly in handling it. Lots of other countries have done better. Uh, these people are hopeless. We must get more competent, decent leaders. Unfortunately, there's another possibility, which I fear very much is what will happen. They will say, it's all the fault of the experts who cheated you as usual and allowed you to die. It's nothing to do with us. We've done our best. And of course, in addition to all the experts who've done this, of course, it's the fault of foreigners. It's, the, it's a Chinese virus and the Chinese aren't supplying us with the, uh, the, the material we need to deal with it, the mask and all the rest of it. And so it just goes to show uh, we must make America or Britain first and, and uh, take it out on foreigners. Um, and I fear very much that the, this latter political strategy, blaming the experts and blaming the foreigners, will work. If so, we're going to move into a very dark time. If you look back in the history of major pandemics, all the way back, there is a certain tendency for it to generate, quite understandably, in the population, fear, paranoia, anger, lynchings, uh, because people... Uh, want to take it out on somebody. 
at least this time we have a proper understanding of the disease me mechanism, which wasn't the case 600 years ago in the Black Death. But even so, I am worried that the politics won't be ones in which people learn from the experience, but people instead double down on the instincts that led them to select these leaders. You mentioned that you're in the process of writing a book. Uh, I think the title is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Is there going to be a coronavirus chapter or is it essentially the book? Well, that's a very good question since I'd written nearly all the book and was about to fin finish it. And this has come along and it's obviously made me think about it. I suspect what I will end up doing uh, at the moment is because most of the rest, I think, still stands is add another chapter, which, of course, can't be written yet. And that's the problem uh, on the crisis in health, how we responded to it and what that's doing to us. Um, I do think uh, that three years from now or four years from now, the world is likely to look very different. And it's unbelievably difficult to predict what that new world is going to look like. But I think this is a major shock and it's likely to last a long time. And these events are always profoundly political in their import. So I, I do expect that two, three years from now, the world is going to look rather different. And so is the future of democratic capitalism. One possibility to be really depressed is that governments will persuade their peoples that they need absolute emergency powers. You can see that happening in some countries. These emergency powers are essentially dictatorial, allow them control over movement, over opinion forming, over media. I'm not saying this will happen in our countries, but it's the sort of thing that will happen. And we, we move into essentially an authoritarian phase. Emergencies tend to generate that sort of outcome. The constraint on that is usually the decency of leadership, which I don't think is very much in evidence now, or the people's reaction against it. And when people are frightened, they might accept it. So this could be sort of terminal for democracy. That's a very extreme point of view. On the other hand, it's possible that people will say they've indicated that was a path we shouldn't go down. We have to pull together and we need to find a way of trying to pull together because a disease is something that affects everybody. It's a perfect example of why we are in things all together. It's, it's not something that you can protect yourself from very easily. So it's a very big event. I think it will be a transformative event. I don't know, but I don't know where, what direction that transformation will be. I hope it will be towards better, more inclusive, uh, uh, um, more decent societies than we have, but I fear it could be the opposite. And what about the Singapore model, uh, Martin? Could it be an argument in favour of a, a slightly more democratised uh, technocracy? Well, it's authoritarian. It's a very, very subtle form of uh, autocratic stroke guided democracy capitalism. And uh, I think a lot of people will look at that and what they've been doing and say, well, this shows how you do things. Now, um, and I do actually think that there is... There are some aspects of what the Singaporeans do which we ought to have replicated 
we ought to be able to replicate within democratic systems. And to some extent, we used to, at least to some degree. What do they have? They have a superlative technocracy. <coughs> technocracy. They have very highly paid, very sophisticated people. It's a very small country, so it's much easier to manage. They are able to make decisions quickly. We can do that in the UK too with our system, much more difficult in the US. They uh, have a lot of credibility with their public because what they've done uh, is in the past, over the past 70 years, 60 years, has worked so well. So people trust them. And I think a lot of the reasons the Singaporeans behave so well is that they are trusted. Um, now, that goes with a system in which, in really and truly, the, dem the government can never be defeated. Um, now, the question is uh, whether we can replicate this sort of high-quality government administrative system within a democratic framework. I mean, right at the moment, with governments which are hostile to expertise, with leaders who neither understand nor expertise nor appreciate it, this is impossible. It's inconceivable. Uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Johnson are both, in their different ways, trying to dismantle what they call the administrative state, uh, or what uh, people in the US call it the administrative state, which is the technocracy. Now, my hope is, hope is that people will realize from an experience like this that having administrators who know what they're doing, who are able to act decisively and quickly in a crisis is incredibly valuable. And therefore, within a democracy, you still need, in a complex society, a sophisticated technocracy. But if we don't learn that lesson, then I think we won't have a democracy, because in the end, the people won't accept chaos. And the first requirement of government whether it's democratic or not democratic, is it avoids anarchy. And so if we fail so dismally that we have vast numbers of dead, our health systems collapse, uh, our economy essentially implodes, and it seems governments have no idea what to do about this, then I'm afraid our system is going to look very, very non-credible. And that is, I think, what quite a few people in China are praying for or expecting. So it is a test for us, and it's not clear that we're going to pass this test. Finally, Martin, uh, you're at home in South London. I know you, you yeah. fled North London for South London many years ago. I'm in California. Everyone's locked inside their homes. One book that everyone should read in the crisis that would make us all wiser, better for our futures. Oh, that's a very, very good question. Well, I was asked... I don't know whether there is, well, I'll tell you, I'll give, I'll give you two answers if I may. Um, uh, the best book I ever read on disease in history, and it's quite old, so no doubt in part uh, um, is now out of date, but it was, it was, a, it was almost the, the, the starting point of an incredibly important literature which transformed my view of disease in history. It's by an American historian called W.S. McNeil, who was a professor at Chicago. It was called, uh, if I remember correctly, Plagues and People. 
Um, anyway, it was by W.S. McNeil. I was also asked by the FT, what great big novel should you set down and read uh, to keep you engaged and thinking uh, in the many days we're going to be at home? And I recommended what the book that I considered the greatest novel of the 20th century, Thomas Munn's A Magic Mountain or Zauberberg, which is about people uh, in a sanatorium for tuberculosis before the First World War. Um, so it's about disease. It's about love. Uh, it's about the, dis- the, the chaos and destruction of society. Uh, the forces at work breaking up society before the First World War, which has, I think, lots of echoes for our time. And it certainly makes you think about where we are now. Martin Wolf, as wise as ever, keep well. We need your wisdom. And I will look forward to talking to you again very soon. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Keenon, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy tomorrow's versus yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.